0: Hey everyone, welcome to BizBody. I'm Keith Shimon, and today we're sitting down with Greg Roscoff. He's the founder of Muscle Activation Techniques. He's built an education company, he has practice, and at the same time, he also leases space out of his facility to other practitioners. In this episode, there's some tidbits on how he created Muscle Activation Techniques, how he started to build the content for Muscle Activation Techniques, and then also how he built a team for muscle activation techniques. If you like the show and you're looking for more, head over to bizbody.net. We have some more content as well as the BizBody Collective. It's a network for like minded professionals that want to start a conversation. Make sure that you hop over to iTunes, give us a five star review when you get the chance, and leave a positive comment. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. So, without further ado, the interview with Greg Roscoff.
1: So I thought we'd uh, kick it right off today and just kind of give us, um, our listeners, a background of kind of how this all developed. Okay. Actually,
2: um, I started, as you said, I was a strength and conditioning coach at at Fresno State uh, back in 1985 after I graduated from college. And um, played college football at a small school in Iowa. And train, when I was training on the off-season, I was working at a rock quarry, one of the hardest jobs I ever had in my life. I was jackhammering and splitting rocks for the summer and thinking that I'd be in the best shape of my life. Well, I fell 20 feet and um, had a compression fracture, So, I had a fractured vertebrae, and we really didn't even know that there was a fracture. I just sat out of work and, and didn't participate for the last few weeks before the season ended, and I went back to college and um, got carried off off in a stretcher the first day of training camp and they did x-rays and found that like four to six weeks ago I had a fracture had fractured my L5 vertebrae a, a compression fracture and so that forced me to to sit out a season and and um kind of changed my direction. I still had a couple more years of eligibility. Um, and I tried to come back after skipping a season. I tried to come back a year later. And every time I would increase the intensity, my back would tighten up and I'd, it would be like having broken ribs. I couldn't breathe. And I, um, again, got carried off in a stretcher time. And finally I said, you know what, I got to I gotta hang it up. And so I finished that year, but I, with another year of eligibility, um, I was open to trying to play, and then one of my coaches told me about an opening at Fresno State as a, an assistant strength and conditioning coach, and I had all the credits I needed to graduate. So I was like, you know what, I need to just go on. And and so in that process, I still had a lot of residual problems and, and started getting having more problems. I mean, Next thing I know, I'm starting to have patellofemoral syndrome and plantar fasciitis and one injury after another. So while I'm working as a strength coach and still trying to train at a heavy level, Um, or at a high level, I just kept breaking down. And it's interesting from that dynamics because at Fresno State at the time back in the 80s, if you were injured, you went to the training room and until you were healthy, you didn't come back in the weight room. And so – kind of get, some people get stereotyped. Mm Oh, they're always injured. They're a hypochondriac. And and I'm sitting there looking at some of these athletes. And the big question in my mind was, how come some people get bigger, faster, and stronger when you train them and others break down? Mm -hmm. And so I had empathy toward the people that were breaking down and and they were getting injured all the time. And I knew that it was, I mean, there was something deeper than they're just a hypochondriac or it's all in their mind. And, and so I started paying more attention to... The injured people, rather than the healthy people, and then I broke off of Fresno State, started doing more uh, performance training and and working working with athletes, and then working at a at a sports club that I worked with general clients at, at a tennis club, and and I was the guy that became known as the exercise guy for people that had pain, and like he understands the body, understands pain, and 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 to the degree I think back and think I didn't even have a clue back then. <laughs> um, it sounds familiar. I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was still frustrated, and and by the time I'm 25 years old, I finished my uh, degree at Fresno State and it was, had a master's with an emphasis in exercise science, and um, so I was always in that field. And, um, but still by the time I was 25 years old, I'm sitting there, man, if I'm this bad at 25, what am I going to be like when I'm 50? And, um, so I started seeking out specialists in every field from chiropractic to physical therapy to podiatry. Uh, I went to functional medicine conventions and I was, I was trying to learn about the body, um, as much as I could, because I wanted to transfer it over to my clients, but more important, I wanted to Figure out how to help myself, mm-hmm. and um, so I was taking all these principles and, and from every field, and it was interesting because the common denominator in every field was from every specialist as they did evaluations on me was your tight. Mm-hmm. And, and the tightness is the cause, the reason that you're having patellofemoral syndrome and plantar fasciitis and all these other symptoms is adaptation to your fractured vertebrae. But everything's tightening up, and we need to loosen up these tight tissues. But the problem was, every time I would stretch or get deep tissue massage, I couldn't get out of bed the next day. I'd have numbness down my leg and sciatica, and and so again, even though I was starting to gain a better understanding of the body. Um, it wasn't helping me. The things that I was applying to my clients were not helping me. Yeah. And so I'd see clients getting better with all these different modalities that I was using to increase mobility because I'm same things I was doing for myself. I was trying to apply to my clients, and I saw most people. I mean, a lot of people um, got better with it, but um, there's still a certain group of people that I mean had negative effects. Yeah. And so that always sat in the back of my mind, and still questioning why nothing nothing seemed to be helping me. And realized that when I didn't stretch or get massage, I actually felt better. Hmm. And um, so it was—it was just interesting. And but the focus of every modality and every specialist that I learned from at that point was: we need to loosen tissue, whether it's we got to reduce, uh, um, reduce reduce scar tissue or break down scar tissue and adhesions, or stretch the muscle, or adjustments from a chiropractor. The whole goal of every modality was: we need to increase mobility. And um, and so then I, I had the opportunity. at this point, I was hired by the Utah Jazz and uh, was doing things that were I was having a lot of success with with this muscle tightness um, mentality and with the mentality of trying to improve range of motion. It got me pretty far. But you realize that athletes, I always say, I mean, you can do anything wrong with athletes and still have success with athletes. Right. <laughs> but you recognize that the integrity of the neuromuscular system of an athlete is so much higher than the general public. So it it really started um I think that's why I had so much success early on because all I was doing was working with athletes and so my principles were carrying over into into having positive effects with these athletes mm-hmm. But then as I started working with more of the general public and people that weren't as healthy, I started seeing that wow, that's not working as good when people's bodies are more stressed. Yeah. And um, so anyway, with my association with the Utah Jazz, I got brought in, um, tied in with the chiropractor of the Utah Jazz, Craig Bueller, And um, Craig Bueller uh, worked in clinical kinesiology. And in clinical kinesiology, it involves a lot of muscle testing, and he had been trained directly under this Dr. Dr. Alan Beardall, who developed clinical kinesiology. And so when I started working with the Jazz, Dr. Bueller wanted to show me everything he did. And he started testing all the muscles on my body and found like 80 muscles weak on my body. I'm like, how can I have 80 muscles weak on my body? And I work out all the time. And and he treated one muscle and... um, And it took about twenty minutes to treat a muscle, and it was like a muscle in my foot—the peroneus longus—and so we treated it, and I'm thinking okay now we have seventy nine more muscles to go through and I'm like well we're never gonna get through through this. But anyway, so it exposed me to muscle testing and, and because there was this time consuming issue to it and and it really didn't fit in the field and the work that I did, I didn't quite see the correlation. But we worked together for ten years um, as the as working with John Stockton and some of the other guys through the Stockton Malone era. Um, we were able to work together with so many of the players. And so as we worked together, we start I started Coming, me coming as a range of motion guy, mm-hmm. I start. I'd come in. I'd do range of motion assessments, and I'd find out where there's limited mobility. And I understood these interrelationships between the foot, the ankle, the knee, the hip, and the trunk. And and I think that was understanding functional movement in these interrelationships. I think was was what made me unique in what I was doing at the time, and um, and what got me hired by the Jazz in the first place. Because when I first met John Stockton. He had had a bulging disc, a patella tendonitis, and Achilles tendonitis, and no one had ever correlated that they may all be related. Mm-hmm. There yeah. were all these individual injuries, and I came in, and I'm like, well, this is all interrelated, and it's because you have imbalances here that put in increased stress on these joints and tissues, and, and tried, made a correlation and was able to do some things that helped him, which all had to do with range of motion exercise, range of motion um, techniques and, and um, exercise, mm-hmm.
0: and so... You also were a foot guy at one point in time, weren't you? Like yeah, you, so you, you did podiatry type type stuff, or um, kind of, were you pedorthus
2: uh, No, uh, just okay. um, I. Early on, as I was starting to look at functional movement, I realized the foot's the first thing that hits the ground and, um, the rest of the body has to react to what the foot does. So I started seeking out specialists that dealt with foot mechanics and its relationship to the rest of the body. And and yeah, and I actually became a foot specialist where people would, doctors would refer to me if they thought that the feet had anything to do with somebody's back pain or knee pain. Uh, I had local doctors in Fresno that were referring to me. And so I kind of created a niche, um, Looking at foot mechanics, I was applying orthotics at the time. I would put people in orthotics. Um, in reality, looking back, is because of my naivety and not understanding the significance of the muscles and how they can actually create foot stability and alter the way forces transfer up the body. I was I was using the orthotics as really like a crutch or a, a, an artificial form of support. Um, but it goes back to the the idea that. Um, everything at that point was looking at the problem as a when you have foot mechanic issues, it's a structural issue, yeah. not a functional issue. Yeah. And so as I as I worked with Craig Bueller and I came in and shared everything uh, in this interrelationships of joint and how the foot, the ankle, knee, hip, trunk, everything was interrelated. Um, we started correlating our work when we worked with the athletes, and I started noticing that when I would see limitations in range of motion, and I'm thinking that I need to increase mobility there was one particular time we were working on John Stockton he was limited in hip rotation internal rotation in his hip and Bueller had just tested the muscles that support the hip and they were all strong so I come in and say well he's tight here so we need to I mean increase his mobility so I do some stretching techniques PNF and, and different uh, techniques to try and increase his mobility and after I finished treating him and increased which gave an in created an increase in range of motion um, Bueller came back and tested some muscles that related to internal rotation in the hip and they tested weak. And he turned to me and he said, what did you do to him?
0: Uh oh! Look look at
2: what you did. This is bad. That's exactly (laughs) what went through my head. Is I don't know, but this can't be good because he was strong before I put my hands on him, and now he's weak. And and that was an eye-opening moment in my career. That um, I mean, I I didn't understand the the role of muscle testing and where it fit in with what I did, but I I saw a strong position, a stable position. Uh, end up demonstrating instability after I had performed some range of motion assessment. So the more I worked, now I started to to learn a lot of these muscle tests. I went, got the books from... um, from clinical kinesiology that was created by Alan Beardall. And I got the books and I started practicing and playing around with the muscle tests. But me coming from a range of motion standpoint, I was always assessing end ranges of motion. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the muscle tests or most of the muscle tests in in Alan Beardall's work test muscles in the mid-range position. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so I'd be and even working with Bueller, we'd test muscles in mid range and they would test strong. And so let's say I saw a limitation in motion and in internal rotation. I'd say, well, what happens if you test it like with more rotation? Mm-hmm. He has more rotation. He's tight here, but there, um, but you're testing in mid range. What if you tested in the extreme range? And we found, and I started finding that wherever there was a limitation in range of motion, if I tested the muscle in a more extreme range than what the clinical kinesiology test dictated, I'd find weaknesses. So where Bueller was finding strengths in his tests, I was actually changing the position of a test and finding weakness. And we'd get in arguments and Bueller would say, well, that's not the test. And I'd be like, well, but there's a position of weakness.
0: You're like, that's right, that's not the test. This (laughs) is our (laughs) test. Yeah, Yeah, Which
2: has now become our test. Yeah, Yeah. and so, and we'd have these arguments and then I'd say, but there's a a position of weakness here and that position of weakness can't be a good thing. And so we need to do something to, to get it activated. So off of the, that experience and correlating that there was wherever I saw limitations in range of motion, there was correlating muscle weaknesses. I put a whole system together, which is now we now know as MAT, uh, muscle activation techniques is the, where we actually use a range of motion assessment, not to tell you what's tight, but to tell you what is potentially weak. Yeah, so with yeah. the with the basic principle that wherever you see a limitation in range of motion, it tells you that one or more of the muscles that cross that axis is potentially weak. Now, you're through the muscle testing, we would actually test all the muscles that cross the axis, find out which one of those muscles were weak, and then through the specific activation techniques, we reactivate those muscles, improve the communication between the brain and the muscle, and there's a hundred percent correlation that anytime you impr- improve the muscles' ability to contract, the tight muscles relax. So it's a, it was a whole paradigm shift in thought process that yeah. I went from range of motion is an indicator of tightness. It's the uh, range of motion limitations are an indicator of muscle tightness, and we have to improve range of motion in order to improve function. And I and since I wasn't getting all the results that I would hope for for years, um, this change in mentality started saying, wow, actually this tightness is secondary. This this tightness is a symptom. And, um, so now I look at range of motion as being an indicator of weakness. And when you can get those muscles strong and improve those muscles ability to contract, then the tight muscles
0: relax. It's, it's almost as if you kind of walk backwards into an educational role of which it's almost like you had no intention to ever really teach. But that's but like, you know, you practice and you teach. In that moment when you decided to even think about teaching and, and, yeah. and bringing that out to the masses, what was that kind of like moment for you?
2: Yeah, I, I, and probably basically you said it perfectly is I had no idea what I was getting myself into uh, when, I, when I came up with really a revelation in a, in a whole paradigm shift in thought process. And I knew that nobody was looking at the body this way, where they were recognizing that these range of motion limitations correlated with muscle weakness. And it was me bringing the tools together into a systematic process that, um, that seemed so like straightforward, like check range of motion, test the muscles that are weak, treat them or test the muscles to find weakness, treat the muscles that are weak. And then you have increased mobility and stability. So there was a, a, over time and frustrations and challenges and, and trying, different things out on clients. Um, over time I developed this systematic process and that's the thing I know, especially working in pro sports. I mean, um, getting a lot of referrals from a lot of different people and to the point where I was just overloaded. Yeah. And from a day-to-day practice standpoint, I was busting at the seams. I had no room to take clients and, and, uh, but I was getting a lot of people in the field, the health and exercise field that were interested in what I was doing. So I started just teaching weekend classes, mm. just, uh, on the principles. This is what I do. Um, taught them a little bit of the, on how to apply it practically, but it was more about the concepts and, and uh, introducing them to this new thought process. And, um, then as I developed a good following, people would call me up and want to know more about what I did. And then I'm like, the only way that I can, I mean, really do it is to teach you what I do. Yeah. And so I, I, um, I just said, you know what, i I'm going to st- because I was busting at the seams I like I'm going to teach people and so really all the people that were referring clients to me and contacting me for information I said I sent out invites and said I'm going to take 25 people or I sent invites to 25 people said I'm going to do a 10 month program teach you this total body process um, and who was ever interested if you want to do it I mean I'm here to teach you, yeah. and so I had 19 out of the 25 people that I sent the invites I mean wanted to do it and, and signed up for that first what I would call internship so that took so much preparation. I had no idea what it took to put PowerPoints together and prepare the manuals and everything for that first class, um, not knowing that there'd be a second class. So I'm just putting the manuals together between uh, the classes ran once a month, basically. And between every class I was put, I had that whole month to put the next manual together. And so by the time I'm halfway through, I'm like, well, I can't do all this work and never (laughs) teach this again. I put way, way too much work in to never teach it again. And at the same time, people were coming to me saying, hey, I heard you're teaching this now. I'd like to know more about it. And I said, okay, I'll start another class in six months. So now I had a second class. And, and then now we're... 50 classes into it over the last 15 years, basically. And I would have never, I would have never known, uh, the magnitude and, and the direction that would have, it would have went to. And so I really had to adapt on the fly. And next thing yeah. I knew I had to hire people. I was busy seeing clients. So I needed to hire people to, uh, one, manage my, my business and, and, uh, put the manuals together and, and, collect money for the classes and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm already in deep. I got a bunch of administrative responsibilities (laughs) (laughs) that that I wasn't prepared for.
0: You're looking around and saying like wow, this is uh, this is completely different than I even thought of. Like, it, it doesn't look anything like I'd yeah. imagine it at first.
2: Yeah. yeah when it, sometimes when I hear people that have business plans and I mean they have things laid out for years of of wh- what they expect to happen. This is so. I mean, I've had to adapt on the fly since day one. Yeah. And it's like I always have felt like if I had a business plan, I'd never follow it because it would probably steer me in directions that, as things have evolved, I would find that that's not where I need to be going. Yeah. So. So a business plan is a good format to follow, but it can't be set in stone with what I've learned. I can't have it set in stone because there's so much variability and there needs to be the ability to adapt. And so many times I think I'm going one direction and and practice and work and everything is taking me in a different direction. Yeah,
1: pivoting all the time. So, I mean, I guess the thing that really just blows my mind about, like, everything that you've gone through is the fact that you're still a practitioner. You still see... Clients like very consistently. You also teach very consistently. Like, how do you keep that all together with also your research and development and running a business? Like, how have you gone out and found good people to be able to take some of the load off of you so you can do what you really love doing, which is like teaching and working on people?
2: Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think from the teaching standpoint and the being working as a practitioner. Either one of those could be a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And, and they both are full-time Yeah, they jobs. are. They are. And, and, yeah. Uh, and they take, uh, I mean, the majority of my time. But one thing I realized early on is I cannot be a good and effective instructor if I'm not practicing every day. I think some people start to teach what they do and they quit practicing and then they, they're no longer fresh and, and learning and, and, and continuing to learn. So people end up passing them the, that they end up teaching. So the the practical application, the, the what I do on a day-to-day basis helps to make me a better teacher. But as an instructor, I realized that I'm a better practitioner because things questions come up and uh, that you never even think about on your day-to-day activity. So on both sides of it, being an instructor makes me a better practitioner and being a practitioner makes me a better instructor. Hmm. So with those two factors be- becoming two full-time jobs, I realized I can't give up one of them. And so that's where my focus had to be. And while my focus was there, I also had a business that was really trying to run itself because I had some people hired for, I mean, to to help me out, but I didn't have a plan. I didn't uh, in the way of, uh, well, I just need help more than, okay, this is actually becoming a business, a real business. And and so then I realized that I need to get the right people to run this business because I need somebody as good um, as what I do running my business. like yeah. They need to be just as good on the business, the marketing, the um, uh, operation side of it that I am at, at MAT, and I can't be a jack-of-all-trade. And so uh, there was a, a period where I started to see my business kind of disintegrating. We weren't organized. Our paperwork was bad. We didn't have good record keeping. And I mean, collections, all of these things like this, like this isn't how a business is going to run. And no. if it's going to continue to grow, um, it's going to blow up from the inside. I mean, it, it's not going to, I'll never be able to reach the potential of where this can go if I don't have a good solid foundation on the business side of it. So
0: how did, how did you um, go out and find some of these people? Like what were some of the things that you did that, that frustrated you and some of the things that helped you succeed in finding your team. Yeah, and the,
2: you realize everything happens for a reason. And um, and there's, I mean, certain things that happened early on where um, people – whether they were taking the information, trying to teach it as their own, or they were misrepresenting it. Uh, next thing you know, you need a legal team or you need somebody, um, looking, looking at, well, you, you don't even have contracts. And mm-hmm. if you haven't had it, you're not protecting yourself. So you need to be proactive rather than reactive. So I needed to bring in a, in a, an attorney who understood this type of dynamics in the business. Then I had to find an accountant. So through my attorney, we were able to find a good accountant so that they, from a, um, from a business standpoint, or hiring and fire—I'm not hiring, firing, but hiring employees and and well, firing um, too. Yeah, yeah so ha- I mean, yeah, we could have Yeah, we could
0: yeah, <laughs> process with that too. Otherwise, you're going to yeah. completely tank yourself.
2: Yeah, and so yeah, so you have to be really the best thing. One of this, uh, she was a client of mine uh, probably 15 or 18 years ago, the best thing she told me is you need to be proactive rather than reactive. And so I know it's a pain to have to have contracts and, and, um, and I know sometimes you don't even want to do that when you're a small business. You want, I mean, you, you always trust people and you want to do things on a handshake, but you realize you start realizing you can't do that. And not everybody comes to you at face value. And so, so I, she, by having her work with me to get contracts and, and bringing in an accountant to start, I mean, monitoring my books, um, uh, we, we I felt like I had a couple consultants that were at least helping me and this present staff that I had with the foundation. Um, but then over time, I realized that just as important as it is having the good people in the consultant roles, uh, I tried to hire outside business consultants to manage my business. And I realized I needed somebody full time that specialized in business to run this business uh, because so many things were still falling through the cracks while I was working 10 hours a day, um, seeing clients and teaching on weekends. There were so many things that were falling through the crack that i said, you know what, J- I mean, it's more important to have a really good person than keep trying to hire consultants or employees that, oh, that um, really, you.
0: really cost yeah, you.
2: Yeah. It's a, I, I saw a, a post that basically if you, um, hire a, if you don't hire a professional, you, well, I forgot what it said, but you'll end up paying in the, in the long run. Yeah, so, yeah. so I realized, uh, after time and after a lot of frustration, I found somebody who, uh, trade KV who's, basically my COO who's Basically, he understands everything about the business, the operations, and he uh, took a small small companies in the in the technology industry years back, and took them to larger companies. He's managed up to thirteen thousand employees, and 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 to in company that actually sold to a major uh, company as an, an AT and T. And I realized this guy understands business, and he knows how to take something small and make it big. and And we had to have those conversations when I first talked with them and we interviewed each other really. Yeah. Um what are my goals and where do I want this to be? And do your goals match what I want to do? And I I really had to have a face-to-face with myself and say, do I want this to be big? Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to just come into a small business and and not have a lot of stress. And once you start having more employees and and more responsibilities, it it can become overwhelming. And and so I had to make that decision, like, are you ready to go that way? Because if I'm ready to go that way, then this is who I need. Yeah. If I'm not ready to go that way, then um, I can stay small and, and really just have more managers for more than anything. And and so it was like, at that point, it's like, there's too much potential for this business because I believe that um, there needs to be an MAT practitioner in every city, in every state, uh, in every country, like there are PTs and chiropractors and, and trainers. Uh, I believe MAT can be that big. And, and so I so I really made that decision probably three years ago that I need to bring in the right people, right staff. And we, we kind of had to do a clean house. We had to clean house and yeah. and um, get everybody that was working in the facility and working for me to make sure that everybody had the same vision and direction uh, as I had and what I had shared with Craig as he's running the company. Because you realize I realized early on, if people you can have the best people working for you, but if those people don't share the vision and direction of the company, uh, they become toxic in your yeah. company. And so now we have a staff That everybody's sharing the same vision and everybody knows where this is going to go and the potential of MAT. And so I think we're in such a good place right now.
0: You guys have a great culture. And and, um, how how big is the uh, the staff right now? How big? How many employees? We have
2: have uh, six practitioners. Two of them being the physical therapists uh, with rock solid physical therapy, uh, and myself. So seven practitioners. And then we have a staff, administrative staff, about five or six people from an administrative standpoint.
1: Nice. On, on average now, how many practitioners are you are you turning out a year, like through your education?
2: It's it's been a, a process. I would say on the average over the years, um, it's we. Uh, I've never wanted to grow too big too fast mm-hmm. because we don't want to jeopardize the integrity of the program. Um, and I mean, as you know, it's an intense process, and and so um, we probably average about a hundred people a year that come through the process.
1: Which you know, like in the grand scheme of things doesn't sound like a huge number but it really is like yeah. for something that's as new as MAT like yeah. that's a big number and you know i think that the idea that if you decided hey i want to stay small i don't want to necessarily you know keep i don't want to lose track of the business and i want to be the practitioner and i want to be the educator and i want to collect the money mm-hmm. and i want to you know set my <laughs> schedule that none of this would be possible like right. that 100 people wouldn't be a hundred people like you, you know, and I think your mindset to decide, you know what, this needs to get out. I think is great that you went out and you got these people involved to help you with the business because ultimately I don't think that's your passion anyway. Like your passion is teaching. Your passion is working with clients. And I think that's the big thing with a lot of practitioners is we love to practice. Like that's what we're good at. It's the business part that's really, really difficult for a lot of people. So Understanding some of the processes, you know, like you've talked about of going out and getting a lawyer so you're protected with your contracts and going out and getting a good accountant so the IRS doesn't come right. knocking down yeah. your door, yeah. you know, I think is a huge thing that, you know, kind of gets overlooked because you get into this to help people and all of a sudden, now you've got a whole other like yeah. problems you never prob- imagined y- exactly well, yeah. when you
0: started out did you did you have like a business coach or did you did you just have like any type of mentors that you could bounce ideas off of that were also clients
2: yeah i think the the nice thing about this field i mean it, uh, the clientele that we have i mean it, it attracts professionals and so i mean i have i mean a uh, uh, array of attorneys and accountants and and um, pr- business owners and oil and gas, and professionals in every field, that um, they've done it. They've they've uh, self-made people that have built their own businesses, and and that because you're helping them. They would do anything to help you. So so over the years, uh, even if I go back to um, my attorney that I first hired, she was a client of mine. Mm. And so we'd have conversations while I was working on her. And then it's like, you know what, maybe we need to go, ha- I mean, sit down and have lunch and talk. So the, the conversations get stimulated and, and kind of superficially as you're working with them. Then you realize, and they realize they have something they can bring to you since you're helping them. They want to help you yeah. and vice versa. You realize, wow, this person... And I mean, can bring something to the table that can help me business-wise. And what a great—I mean—the the resources and the people that I've been able to bounce ideas off of and um, share frustrations with, and, yeah. and 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 hear their stories of how they started with nothing and how they took it to a big business and created, and all the frustrations and lawsuits and things, the challenges that they had to go through. You realize you're not alone. Yeah. Uh, when you when you do build a business or start a business, I mean, they say less than. 10 percent of business small businesses um, are still alive in 10 years and so it's very hard to to build a business and keep it running and so when you're surrounded by people that have done it um, it's such a great resource to to have access to and 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 give feedback i mean they've, they've been there
0: yeah yeah can you tell us a little bit about like some of the bigger frustrations, how you dealt with them, like and how you've risen above, because I know that everyone will have a time, especially like you said before, small businesses, small problems, larger businesses come with. Like bigger consequence, you know. Yeah, I think
2: w- when when you start a small business and everyone can appreciate it, the first thing that you want to do is bring in all your friends, and you want <laughs> you want them to share sure. share the wealth, if you want to say, or share share the excitement of what you're doing. And so you bring in people that may not be the most qualified for the job they're in, and and um, and you carry them along for a period of time, and then you realize that. These, maybe this person isn't the best person for the job, and now it, now that it becomes a serious business, it's no longer fun. And and so one of the frustrations is is that uh, business is business, and I mean, and sometimes you have to keep that separate. And and that was an eye opener for me because you just you want it to be just one happy family, and you can have good good relationships in business, but, um, but it's hard when you have to, uh, make changes and, yeah. Um, yeah. and let people go. And I think one of my biggest flaws was, um, uh, over time is hanging on to people too long like huh. when you know it's wrong and you know the this <laughs> you just familiar. have this feeling <laughs> and um, but you, you you don't want to ruin a relationship and uh, but though but the not ruin a relationship in a business standpoint ends up ruining the relationship in the long term huh. because it's going to show its face I mean it's going to come to a head at some point and and uh, then it becomes a bigger problem than it would have been if you just were face to face recognizing that hey this just doesn't. I mean, we're not. This this isn't working.
0: And um, I'm so I'm so non-confrontational with stuff. Like so I, I, I I like I just try to sidestep it. I'm, I'm not good at wimp junction, you yeah. know. And yeah. I do, sometimes I don't even know what to say until I blow up yeah you know that's that's a really tough skill to to master yeah
2: and being in a in a um an industry that we're in where i mean we're we're it is about personal relationships with our clients with the people and and all of a sudden you have to you have to be confrontational and again that goes back to the idea is now that I have somebody running my business They can be the one, they can be the bad guy. They can be the one that has to, that's dealing with the employees and, and, um, and, and with no bias or personal uh, feelings um, behind their decision and having, having somebody that said, Hey, this is business and this is the decision I have to make, then I'm not the bad guy. Again, you, you, you realize you have to put people in positions to do the things you're not good at. And there's a lot of things that I was trying to do and hold on to, like you said about with your accounting the finances and Scheduling, and you want to hold on to everything. And eventually, if you held, if you try and hold on to anything, everything, you're in self-destruction mode. So the biggest thing, challenge I had to overcome was me not being trying to control everything and letting, bringing in the people that are good at the things that I'm not good at.
1: We've been privileged to spend time with you, and obviously learn from you. And um, you know, I can say that uh, this whole process for us has completely evolved since we got started. What eight years ago and it's only getting better and better and you know I want to thank you personally for all the things you've done and uh, you know I know Keith probably feels the same way so just a little bit yeah (laughs) (laughs) no everything that you know that we've been
0: through, you know, and how we've seen the exercise industry and the, the body working industry change. And even like therapy, because we, we work side by side with so many different types of therapy, like chiro- chiropractic and, and physical therapy. My wife's an occupational therapist and seeing how things have changed over time. And so with practitioners that are that are starting out, especially like maybe young budding body workers or, or people that are starting their own gym, like what would be like in your mind um, a really good piece of advice for getting them out on the right track.
2: Yeah, I think the, the first thing is exactly that is... Know and recognize what you're good at and what you bring to the table, and be comfortable in recognizing and and, and identifying what you're not good at. And right from the start, uh, obviously you're going to learn over time. But right from the start, um, try and find the people that can actually fill the voids that you can't bring to the table. Because just like I said, I was I would I was in self destruction mode because I wanted to control everything and and take control of the things that I wasn't even good at. And it's like the, the piece that I have now that I can actually let somebody else handle that mm-hmm. um, is like, well, I didn't like that anyway. I didn't want to <laughs> run the business. I didn't want to hire employees. I didn't want to have to manage them. And so um, so probably uh, along with that, find the mentors um, that, have, that can help you in the startup of a business that understand um, what it takes to, to build a business. Find consultants that can can uh, can help you in those early stages because if they've been there, they, they know what to expect. We go in with our eyes wide open and naive thinking that everything's going to be great. And to run a business, it's always going to be challenging. Yeah. And so if you can tie yourself in with mentors and people, the advisors that understand it and have been there, uh, you won't go in so blind and and so naive and, and, um, and they can also just help you orchestrate how to, I mean, structure a business. It's
1: awesome. It's good advice. Yeah. Great advice. If um people want to learn more about muscle activation techniques or want to maybe even get on your schedule what are how can they get in contact with you what are the things that they can do to learn more about what it is that you do.
2: Yeah, so all our information is on our website, was is muscleactivation.com, and it talks about their courses and the um, the section that talks about our whole education program from the jump starts to the internship all the way through Rx, and um, they can uh, go to, once they're on the website, they can contact our, cu- our customer support and um, people will give them all the information they need from the education. In the same manner, um, you can go to our website. If, if you're looking for me personally, it's my schedule's uh, hard to get on, but we have our, like I said, our other six practitioners here and um, at this facility, so we have the opportunity to accommodate anyone locally to um, to get the services of MAT, but again, because we've trained trainers and therapists across the country, if you go to a website and you don't live in Denver and you want to um, take advantage of the service of MAT, you can go under the section on our website that says finding a specialist, and, and we have all our services certified specialists across the country listed on our website.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time today. I know that it's always very limited. So I really, really appreciate the conversation.
2: Thank you very much.